Good morning. I'm glad to be back with you this morning. Uh, I want to begin with a photo from my past. Uh, It's not Flashback Friday or whatever, but uh, I thought you might enjoy this. This is uh, a picture from 1999. This is the night that Shannon and I got engaged. And uh, yes, that is my face. And uh, you can throw stones if you've never made any questionable fashion decisions or did not in the 90s. I'm sure we could pull up some old pictures of you as well. Uh, But let me tell you a little bit about this night. I had a plan for how I was going to propose and when I was going to propose to her on that night. And uh, my plan revolved around the sunset. So, so the idea was this, that uh, I was going to pick her up uh, after we both got off work around 5.15 at her house. I had a reservation at a nice restaurant at 5.30, and then the sunset was around 7.20. So the idea was we would have plenty of time for a long and leisurely dinner, after which I would drive her out to one of my favorite spots uh, in the countryside. I had a poem I had written, and at the end of the poem, uh, it said, will you marry me? And I was going to get down on one knee and propose at that moment. So I had it all lined up. I brought that bouquet with me. Uh, I didn't have a lot of money back then, so that was actually the single most expensive bunch of flowers I had ever purchased in my life up to that point. Uh, uh, knocked on the door. Well, well, everything kind of began to go just a little askew because she got home from work just a little bit later than she expected. So she was running behind getting ready for our date. So uh, she said, if you can just wait a few minutes, I'm going to finish getting ready. So I sat on the sofa and uh, I just started watching the clock, right? Because my entire plan hinged on the timeline going perfectly, which I realize in hindsight was a bad idea to plan it that way, right? But but I begin to sweat, you know, because uh, she's taken, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes to finish getting ready. It's finally like 5.40, 5.45, and our reservation at the restaurant was at 5.30. You know, so I had already called them and kind of given them a heads up. We're still coming. We're on the way. We get in the car, and I'm just like as fast as I can go without getting arrested. We pull up at the restaurant. We order this beautiful food at this nice restaurant, and I'm just like shoveling it into my mouth. I'm like, isn't this good? Come on, let's eat, let's eat. You know, and she's looking at me like, what is wrong with you? Like, what has happened? We finish the meal. I pay as quickly as I can. We get in the car, and I just begin to drive like a madman to get out into the country, because by, by the time we left the restaurant, it was like 7.05, and the, the sunset was at 7.20, and I thought, man, I don't want to miss it. You know, I don't, I mean, probably I could have still proposed if we'd missed it, but in my mind at that point, This was critical, right? We get halfway there, and I'm just like, I'm gripping the wheel. I'm driving like crazy. She looks over at me. She says, are you going to drive me out into the country and kill me and bury my body? (laughs) So not the most auspicious of beginnings for when I'm about to propose, right? I said, no, 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 I I promise I'm not going to do that. We finally get out there. We pull up at this spot uh, where I wanted to take her. Literally, uh, we get out of the car and watch the sun just go like this, like immediately it goes down. So I pull out the poem and I read it as well as I can in the dark. And then I propose and she did say yes, even after thinking that I was an axe murderer only (laughs) moments before that. And so then we took this picture. So we are calm and peaceful at that moment. But of course, it was a chaotic and hectic evening, but fun. Now, I look back at that and and, and ask the question, okay, what was it that motivated me to spend so much money, to endure so much stress and chaos? 
What was it that motivated her to stick with me and not jump out of the car on the highway and roll away when she thought I might kill her? Well, uh, here's what it was. There's a, there's a theologian. Uh, his name is Huey Lewis. Uh, you may be familiar with him. Uh, he says, what? It's the power of love. All right, the power of love. Love will make you do a lot of things. Love will change your perspective on your life. Love might even make you do crazy things, seemingly. As we read through the Bible, it's very clear that the power of love springs from God, right? That God is the source of the most powerful feeling, emotion, orientation toward another person that we're aware of. God is the source of love. Now, now we recognize that the love God has for us is different, perhaps, from the, the romantic love that we experience in marriage or when we fall in love, right? But, but the Bible tells us this, that actually marital love, romantic love, is simply a reflection of the unbelievably powerful love that God has for us. That if you can take the, the power of the love that a man and woman feel toward one another in that marital relationship and you multiply it by infinity, that's the love that God has for us. So that the story of the scripture from beginning to end is a story of the lavish, unconditional, powerful love of God. As we continue our Founders series this morning, we're going to look at the life of one man, one follower of Jesus, who was captivated by the love of Jesus, by the love of God, to the extent that everything else in his life, after he encountered the love of Jesus, everything else changed. The way he thought about himself, the way he thought about what he was on earth to do, the way he thought about his future, the way he even described who he was, everything changed when he encountered the love of Jesus. My sermon this morning is entitled, The Disciple Jesus Loved. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, that was the name that John gave to himself when he wrote the Gospel of John toward the end of his life. And he says, if there's one way that I would define myself, it is in relationship to the powerful love of Jesus. Because for John, he would say this, the love of Jesus changes everything. John would say, of all the things I did, of all the things that I experienced, of all the positions I held, what matters most about my life is what you sang when you were three years old in Sunday school. Jesus loves me. This I know. And so from the, that time forward, when he encountered Jesus and the love of Jesus, for him, everything changed. And the question for us this morning is, have you encountered the love of Jesus? And do you believe in the love of Jesus so deeply that you would say, if I'm going to define my life by one thing, it's going to be my relationship to Jesus and how much he loves me. That defines my today and it defines my tomorrow. That was how it was for John. Let me tell you just a little bit about the Apostle John before we dive into how the love of Jesus impacted his life. Let me tell you just a little bit. First of all, John was one of the three men in what you might call Jesus' inner circle. So you probably know Jesus had 12 main apostles or disciples who followed him during his earthly ministry, but he also had three guys who were especially close to him, Peter, James, and John. 
These were the three guys that if Jesus just needed a small group of people to go with him somewhere, he would take these three guys. So at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is transfigured and his glory shines out visibly as a light, it's Peter, James, and John who are up there on the mountain with him. On the night before Jesus is crucified, when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he needs a few people that he can pull aside who will be with him in this moment of pain, he picks Peter, James, and John. Right? So John and James, they're brothers, and then you also had Peter. These are the three guys that are the closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry. John is one of those guys. After Jesus' death and resurrection, John wrote several books that we still have in the New Testament. He wrote five books of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation. So John, uh, other than the Apostle Paul, John is the most prolific writer in the New Testament. He wrote more books than anybody else other than the Apostle Paul. Now, John also lived for a long time, tradition tells us. It's said that he lived until about 100 years old or even a little older than 100. He was the only one of uh, Jesus' disciples who was not, uh, by tradition, martyred when he was relatively young. So, so John lives a long time. Later in his life, he was exiled to Patmos. There was a persecution of Christians under Emperor Domitian. John is exiled to this tiny little Greek island where he wrote the book of Revelation. After his exile, he came back to Ephesus where he served as a church leader and then he died as an old man. Somewhere around uh, 100 AD, John dies as a, a pretty old man. He lived long enough that he was able to pass the faith down into the second century. So tradition tells us that John discipled a man named Polycarp who later became the bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp himself was later martyred for his faith, but he passed the faith along as well. So John is the last of the living disciples who passes the faith down to this man, Polycarp, who then carries it forward into the second century. Now, I share all of that just to say very simply, John did a lot of stuff. Okay, it is, it is very clear that John is probably one of the most important figures in the New Testament. You have Jesus, you have Peter, you have Paul, you have James, you have John. You've got these guys who were just giants of the faith. And yet, and yet, toward the end of his life, as he writes the Gospel of John, and I think the Gospel of John was probably written around 90 AD, John does not describe himself as a member of the Discipleship Executive Committee. John does not describe himself as a great fisherman. John does not describe himself in terms of his ability to be a dad or a husband or his, his job or anything like that. John simply describes himself throughout the Gospel of John as the disciple Jesus loved. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we don't ever see him use his actual first name. He describes himself, every time he describes himself, it's the disciple Jesus loved. Five times in the Gospel of John, we have this designation. Chapter 13, at the Last Supper, he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved was sitting right next to him, and as they were reclined around this low table, John had his head against Jesus' chest. Chapter 19 at the cross, we see John, the disciple Jesus loved, standing next to Mary, Jesus' mother. And Jesus looks at the two of them and he says what? He says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He says, essentially, John, I'm entrusting you to take care of my mom. 
chapter 20 on Resurrection Sunday, when the women run from the tomb to report that the tomb is empty, they first encounter Peter and the disciple Jesus loved, that is John. Chapter 21, verse 7, when Jesus appeared on the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection, John is the one that looks out and he says to the other guys, hey, it's the Lord, right? It says the disciple Jesus loved, he recognized him from a distance and begins to run toward him. And then lastly, 21-20, at the very end of uh, the Gospel of John, when Peter asks about John's future, Jesus had told Peter, hey, Peter, you're going to die a relatively grisly death somewhat young. And Peter looks at John and he goes, what about him, right? And Jesus says, essentially, don't you worry about him, you worry about you, right? If you're a parent, you've probably said that to your kids before. You worry about you, I'll worry about him, right? But John describes himself there also as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And what I love about this is, again, at the end of his life, after everything he's done, John says, the thing that matters most, if, if I'm going to introduce myself to you, right, during stand and greet time, John's going to say, hey, my name is John. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved, right? I'm the one that Jesus loved. And we're going to talk about what that means to John, but it dramatically changes the course of his life when John understands that first and foremost, he is loved by Jesus. I want you to see this as you read through the books that John wrote in the New Testament. John uses the words for love more than any other New Testament author. He uses the words for love. There's a verbal form, agapao, and then a noun form, agape. And then you've got this other form, uh, agapetos, which is often uh, beloved, right? It's referring to a group of people. John uses those words. I mean, it's not even close, all right? His writings by word count make up about 15% of the New Testament, but they make up 40% of the references to love in the New Testament. So the verb, agapaho, is used... 143 times in the New Testament. Uh, That's one of the more used words in the New Testament in Greek. 72 of those usages, so just over half of the usages of the verb, are in John's books. Okay, that tells you just in these five books, there are places like 1 John where it feels like every fourth or fifth word is the word love. Uh, There are chapters like 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 4, where it's just over and over and over. God loves us, so we love others because God loves us because in his love, God, I mean, it's just all over the place, saturated with the love of God. So John says, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. That changes everything about me. And so John would go on to say, when you know that you are loved by Jesus, everything should change. And my question for us this morning is, do you really know and do you really believe that Jesus loves you? You sing it. You've sung it probably since you were two or three years old. But on a day-to-day basis, do you recognize and know and define yourself by the reality that Jesus loves you? Even the darkest parts of your heart, Jesus knows and he still loves you. Even in those moments when you feel you don't belong, you're part of God's family because Jesus loves you. And how would our lives change if on a daily basis we said, I'm going to fill my heart with this grounding reality. Jesus loves me. This I know. And John would go on and he's going to say this, that, that because Jesus loves us, there are a few realities that we know Hey, the first one is this, because Jesus loves us, our future is glorious. Because Jesus loves us, our future is glorious. Now, John spent 
the three years of Jesus' ministry, watching Jesus and listening to Jesus and following him around. And what he observes as you read through John's gospel is he says, Jesus loves us so much, right? So in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper, it says that Jesus, he knew where he came from. He knew where he's going. And knowing all of that, he loved his disciples. And it says he loved them to the very end. And John says, I saw this love when Jesus took off his outer garment, wrapped it around his waist, and he knelt down and he began to wash our feet to demonstrate to us how much he loved us. And in the very next day, what would Jesus do? He would go to the cross where he would die for our sins and rise again because he loves us. Because out of his love, God sent Jesus, his only son, from heaven. All the way through the gospel of John, John is leading up to this ultimate act of love that Jesus came from heaven to earth. Why? Because he loves us and he wants us to have a future with God forever. All right, so the first Bible verse you probably ever memorized, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, right before that in chapter, in verse 15, Jesus predicts his own death, right? John 3, 16 is in the context of Jesus' death that he will provide for payment for our sins. It says, Jesus says the Son of Man has to be lifted up because God loves you so much that that's why he sent me, to secure your future. In 1 John chapter 4, John says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, John says, this is how I know that God loves us because Jesus came, he died from our sin, he rose again. So we have a future, we have a glorious future. Now what's amazing to me is also that the the longest book in the Bible that deals with our future was written by the Apostle John, right? The book of Revelation. And and many of you, I know, you you may be afraid of the book of Revelation, right? Because there's, there's some kind of crazy stuff in there. It can be hard to understand, but, but, but at its root, here's what the book of Revelation says. Jesus loved you so much that he died for you and he rose again and he loves you so much that because he's paid for sin and he wants you to be with him forever, he's coming back, right? And, and all Revelation really is is, is is a story about how Jesus is coming back. But I love that in chapter one, here's how John begins this story of Jesus coming back. Look at this. He says, to him who, what, loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. He says, Jesus is coming back. Why? Because he loves us. And at the end of the book of Revelation, the very last couple of verses, it says, the one who testifies to all these things, that is Jesus, he says to you, yes, I'm coming quickly. And John, he says, amen, Lord Jesus, come. Why does he have that confidence that Jesus is coming? Because he knows that Jesus loves us. John says throughout the course of his life and ministry, he witnessed the love of Jesus Christ and he came to this reality that Jesus came here because he wanted to save us from a future separated from God and give us a glorious future forever. There was a documentary made just a few years ago. It's called The Angel of Nanjing. 
made uh, about a man in China. His name is Chen Si. Chen Si lives in Nanjing, China, and uh, he's nobody famous or wealthy or particularly important in Chinese society. He's a fruit seller. So he owns a fruit stand and he sells fruit. That's what he does. But he lives in Nanjing, and it just so happens that in the city of Nanjing, there's a bridge that goes over the Yangtze River. It's the Nanjing-Yangtze River Bridge. And uh, it is the bridge that is the most popular place in the world for people to commit suicide. So, so since the bridge has been built in the 1960s, thousands of men and women have leapt to their death over the railing of the bridge every week. Multiple people jump off the bridge to their death every week. Well, back in the year 2000, Chen Si happened to be on the bridge one day, and he saw a woman climbing over the railing to jump, and he reached out and he grabbed her, and he pulled her back over the railing, and he saved her life, called the police in, and they they took care of her and got her some help, saved her life. And after that moment, after that encounter, he said, you know, I realized every single week there are people jumping off this bridge. There are people coming with that intention. And so what he does now, every weekend when he's not working, every Saturday, he patrols the bridge. He walks up and down the bridge looking for people who appear to be in despair. Sometimes he has physically pulled people off the railing. Other times he has stopped stopped people from climbing up on the railing. He's credited with saving over 300 lives over the last 15 years. And when interviewed, he says, I I do it because I, I, I know these people. I understand these people. I understand their despair. They're my people. But he says, I can't save everybody. The bridge is too long. There's too many people, and sometimes I can't get to them in time. And, and in fact, sometimes people even, they, they resist him. They, they struggle because they don't want to be saved. But he keeps coming back because these are his people. Right, and what John says when he talks about what Jesus did is, is, first of all, John begins his gospel by saying, Jesus is, is infinitely powerful, infinitely good. He's the Word made flesh, right? So unlike Chen Si, Jesus has the power to save. All who will come to him receive salvation. But also John says, I saw a Savior who came from heaven to earth. And even as people resist him, even as people struggle against him, Jesus says, I'm going to save. I'm here to save because these are my people that I made and I love. So John understands that, that, that the love of Jesus Christ rooted him in the reality that he has a hope and he has a future. Because Jesus loves us, our future is glorious. John also understood that because Jesus loves us, our identity is certain. Our identity is sure. First John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. Beloved, now we are children of God. He says, this is the love of God that that he bestowed on us in Jesus Christ, that we've been adopted into the family of God. And so John says, now, my identity, when when I introduce myself and I say, this is who I am, I don't say, first and foremost, I'm John the fisherman. I don't say, first and foremost, I'm John, one of the guys who got to walk around with Jesus. Instead, he says, I'm John, I'm a child of God, beloved by God, because God sent Jesus for me. And he says, "That, that roots who I am. You serve a Savior who not only has promised you a future if you believe in Him, but who knows who you are. He knows every part of your heart. 
He knows every sin you've committed. He knows every thought that you have thought. And yet he loves you anyway. See, we're, we're, we're human, and so this is hard for us to understand. I, I don't know how many of you sometimes forget people's names or forget who they are, right? I don't know if you've ever had an experience where maybe you have met somebody two, three, four, five, six, seven times, and you cannot remember their name. And what happens is it begins to get awkward, doesn't it? Maybe you avoid them. You, you try not to walk past them so you don't have to try to remember their name. Or maybe you have some sort of trick where you're like, hey, buddy, like, you know, something like that. Because, because you feel bad, right? There was, there was one man years ago that he called me bro for like six years in a row. And it got to where it was, it was awkward for me because I was like, I know you don't know my name, but if I remind you now, you're going to feel so embarrassed. And if you ask me now, you're also going to feel so embarrassed, right? So we're stuck because we're human, right? We forget one another's names. We can't know everybody. Some of you forget your own children's names on a day-to-day basis. You have to rattle through all of them before you get to the right one, right? And even if you know someone's name, you don't know their heart. Often, even those we're closest to, we don't understand what's going on in their heart, in their minds, and maybe you feel that as well. And, and you say, no one understands what's going on in my heart and mind. And what John says is, here's what I want you to understand. As the disciple that Jesus loved, he, he says, I, I serve a Savior. He knows. He knows your names. He knows my name. And he knows everything about me. And he still loves me. Anyway. So that it's not just that I have a future out there somewhere, it's that I have a living and active relationship today with a Savior who loves me. There, there are some common commenters on this passage, on, on the Gospel of John, who they say it seems kind of arrogant, kind of puffed up for him to call himself the disciple that Jesus loved. But they're wrong. Right? It's not arrogant at all. In fact, it's, it's deeply humble. Because John says, of everything else I've done, who I am, at the end of the day, I'm somebody Jesus loves. That's all I am. And you have as much claim to Jesus' affections as John the Apostle. Jesus died for you every bit as much as he died for John the Apostle. Right? And so, so John says, no longer do I, do I identify myself by some sort of career, by some sort of human relationship that might let me down, by some sort of accomplishment that I might fail at later in life, by some sort of position that might be taken away, right? I don't, I don't define myself by those things. I say at the end of the day, I'm somebody Jesus loves. Here's why this matters, I think, because John recognizes only when we understand who we are in Jesus do, they, do we then understand what our, what our mission is moving forward? And that is, once I'm grounded in the love of Jesus, then I know how to represent the love of Jesus to the world because I understand who He is and how much He loves me. Now I can move outward into the world and love others. Uh, when I was coming into A&M as a freshman, like many of you, I went to fish camp. If you never went to fish camp, basically it is Aggie indoctr- indoctrination. Right? So, so it's a week long or maybe four or five days. They teach you all the songs, all the yells. They teach you the colors you're supposed to wear, the colors you're never supposed to wear. 
right? They teach you uh, everything you're going to need to know so that when you walk onto that campus, you're a part of the club, right? So, so you practice those yells and you practice everything about being an Aggie. And I remember at my fish camp on the very last night, something that they did, they, they brought our camp into this, this low-lit room. It was, it was about as well-lit as this room, except instead of real uh, lights, they had candles, right? And we walked in and we we sat down on the floor, and it was kind of like, almost like a religious service, it felt like. And this, this former student got up, and he was maybe in his 20s, and he began to talk about how much being an Aggie had meant to his life, and how much it defined him, and he held up his hand, his left hand, and he said, I wear my Aggie ring on my left hand until the day I get married, because it's closest to my heart. And that defines who I am. And he said, you're going to go out from here and there may be Texas X's, but there are no Aggie X's, right? Once you are in, you're in, right? In hindsight, it sounds almost like a, a mafia induction ceremony, a little bit, right? You, you can get in, but you ain't never getting out, no matter what. But then they said, from, from here on out, for the rest of your life, wherever you go, whether you're in, in College Station or you're in Dallas or you're in Massachusetts or you're in Australia, wherever you go, you are a representative of Texas A&M because you're in the family, right? You see what he did? Essentially, he stole a line from John. He says, you're a part of the group, and now you represent the group. And John says, when I understand that my identity is rooted in Jesus Christ, now I know that I go out into the world as a disciple that Jesus loves with a glorious future, a sure identity, and then thirdly, I have a posture of love. Because I've experienced the love of Jesus, because I'm rooted in the love of Jesus, because I look and I say, I have a, a Savior who loves me so much that He died and rose again to give me a future, to tell me who I am. Because of that, my posture toward the world is love. Now, I use that word posture very deliberately. And here's why. Here's what I mean. Most people in our world, they take one of two postures toward those that might threaten them, offend them, not want to know them, whatever it may be. One posture is this one, right? It's a fighting posture. I say, if you offend me, you disagree with me, you say something on Facebook that I don't like, you don't invite me to that party that I deserve to go to, you insult me. I got my fists up. That's one posture. The other posture is, I've got my back turned, right? I'm just not going to engage. It's a posture of indifference. But John says, because we know Jesus and his love, here's the posture we can take. It's the posture that Jesus took. It's the posture of embrace. I can say, I can say no, matter, no matter who you are, how, how far from God you are, no matter how you've hurt me, I want you to know Jesus. Right, and, that, and that's not to say that Jesus has no standards of holiness or righteousness, but it is to say that Jesus' standards of righteousness are always rooted in love. He wants us to be holy because he loves us, because he knows that's what's best for us. He wants us to be close to him because he loves us. And so Jesus approaches the world and, and Jesus approaches the church with a posture of embrace. 
So that John would say, for those who know Jesus Christ, then that's the posture we are called to take. He says, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Right? He's not saying, look, if you make a mistake and you say something hateful or you do something hateful, that you're going to hell. That's not what he's getting at. This word know that John uses often in 1 John has the idea of a close and deep relationship. He's, he's simply saying this, if you say that I have a, a close relationship with God, but I take this posture or this posture toward those in my sphere of influence, he's going to say, you, you need to look again at how deeply you know God. Because Jesus is a God of love who traversed space and time to draw us to himself. John would say, in, or Jesus would say, John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so John says we take that posture of love. That's hard to do, by the way, in a hate-filled world, isn't it? Hard to do takes practice. It takes prayer. And we're not Jesus, so we make mistakes. It takes us asking for power from the Holy Spirit. So, you know, go back to kind of the beginning of our, of our morning, right? Every, every marriage begins with these feelings of love, but if we're honest, we don't always love very well, right? In those first years of marriage, or maybe even in later years of marriage, we still struggle with it, don't we? Our spouse says or does something that irritates us, and they've done it a thousand times. And so we're ready. Or maybe we're ready. Right? And what do we do? We have to learn, don't we? We have to learn this posture. It's hard with those close to us. It's hard with the world around us. This past week, I went to the grocery store, and when I uh, came out, I got my stuff at the grocery store, came out to my car, Somebody had uh, smeared uh, gum all the way across the bottom fender on the driver's side of my car. I mean, it was from the back to the front. It could not have been an accident. Now, it could have been a child, and I I tried to remember that when I saw it. An evil child, but it could have been a child (laughs) nonetheless. But I walked out, and I was like, who would do this to somebody else's car? I've lost a little bit of hope for humanity right at this moment. Right? And I was angry, and I'm looking around, I'm like, who did it? Right? And I'm ready, I'm ready, I've got my fists up, who is it? And I'm ready, man, I'm ready to fight over a little bit of gum on the side of my car. And then I paused, drove home, calmed down a little bit, and I remembered that, that we see Jesus, even in the face of being attacked by those who, who he loved deeply, being betrayed by those he loved deeply and being put to death by people he made. We see Jesus with a posture of embrace that moves to this posture. To say, I will continue to love. And even on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So John says, in the face of love like that, how could I take any other posture? No matter how far someone is from God, Jesus loves them. No matter what somebody says to offend me, Jesus loves them. 
And again, that's, that's not to say that God has no boundaries. That's not to say that God will not judge sin. That is to say that even in the face of the, the, the darkest evil, Jesus continued to move forward in love. So the question that I have for us this morning then is, is this. Do you, do you know and believe the love of Jesus for your life? Do you know and believe it? Does your life reflect the love of Jesus? If you, if you don't know Jesus, have you ever had, had a time in your life when you trusted that, that Jesus loved me so much that he died for my sins and he rose again so I can have eternal life? That's the beginning of knowing the love of Jesus Christ. If you, if you do know him, Do you get up in the morning and go to bed at night and try to root yourself in the love of Jesus Christ, to spend time in his word, to remind yourself, first and foremost, who are you? You're someone Jesus loves, infinitely and perfectly. We have to fill up our own cups with the love of Jesus before we can then go out in the world and share the love of Jesus. It's like sitting at the movies sharing popcorn with one of your kids, right? And, and you're eating it together and there comes that moment when you're holding it and, and your kid says, can I have some more? And you say, no, because it's empty. But fortunately, what did we do? We bought the giant tub. I can go out in the foyer and I can refill it, right? Got to have a full tub to share with you. John says, when, when I know that Jesus loves me, that, that frees me up to say, I don't have to be threatened by the world, but instead I can take the embrace of Jesus. Let me quickly as I close, I want, I want to share one last story about the Apostle John. And this is a story uh, that is a, a traditional story. So it's not in the scripture. So I, I, I'm going to give a caveat here. I don't know 100% if it's true, but I think it fits with the character of what we know about John. This is a story that was told in the second century by Clement of Alexandria who had heard it passed down about the Apostle John. You remember I said after he left Patmos, John went back to Ephesus and he ministered in and around Ephesus until he died, right? So he was a very old man by this point, 95, 100 years old, and he would travel to these little villages outside of Ephesus to share the gospel and to build the people up. And, and one day he went to a little village where there was a, a beginning church, a new church outside of Ephesus. And, and he ran across a young man. I'm going to call the young man Alexander just so that we have a name for him. So he runs across this young man, Alexander, who's trusted in Jesus Christ. And John is impressed with this young man's faith. So he, he tells the bishop of this little town, he says, I want you to take care of Alexander, train him in the faith, help him know Jesus better. And then John went back to Ephesus. About a year or two later, John came back to check on this little church and to check on Alexander. And when he got there, Alexander wasn't there. And it turned out that in the intervening time, Alexander had fallen back in with some of his old friends who happened to be criminals. They were thieves and they were violent and they were murderers, right? And so he had fallen back in with these people. He had left the church and wandered away. And he had, in fact, become the captain of this band of criminals. John says to the bishop, where is he? The bishop says, I don't know. I haven't seen him. He wandered away from the church. And John says to him, get me a horse. John gets on the horse. 
And he rides off into the country looking for this young man, Alexander, and he finds his little gang of robbers and they attack John and they strip him of his, strip him of his clothes. They take away everything he owns and they imprison him. And John begs them, he says, just let me see your leader. Let me see your captain. Let me see Alexander. So finally, they take him to Alexander. Alexander looks at him and turns off and runs the other way. And John sees him run. And remember, John is 100 years old at this point, so his cardiovascular fitness is not what it had been. But he takes off running after this young man. And he finally catches up with him. And Clement says, this is what John said. He said, why do you run away from your father? A young man running from an old man? I will answer to Christ for you. I will die for you if need be. As Christ died for us, I will give my life for you. And it's said that the young man repented in tears and John took him back to that little church and joined him back to the people of God. And I love that story because I think it hits the heart of what we see in John's letters. This was the reputation John had. A man who had been so deeply impacted by the love of Jesus that he said, I'll chase down that that one young man because that's what Jesus did for me when I was lost, when I was wandering. He chased me down. And so John lives and ends his life as the disciple Jesus loved. And again, as we close, I just want to ask that question. Do you really believe that Jesus loves you? I mean, unconditionally. Do you really believe that Jesus loves you? And then if you believe that Jesus loves you, do you reflect and proclaim that love? What is your posture toward the world? Does it reflect and proclaim the love of Jesus Christ? Or do you immediately have your fists up ready to fight? Or your back turned ready to walk away? As the disciple that Jesus loved, John says, I want my life, my identity to be rooted in Jesus because I know he's given me hope. I know he's given me a future. I know he loves me forever. Will we follow that pattern? Let me pray and then we're going to close in worship. Father, we're grateful for this time and we're grateful for your word. Teach us to know you deeply. Teach us to trust in your love. Father, I pray that we would would recognize how the love of Jesus changes everything for us. That our future and our identity and our purpose would be directed by his love. We praise you and we thank you we pray this in Jesus' perfect and glorious name. Amen.